Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we made it to Friday again, so that's good news. But we actually do have a good martini today, along with a really bad one and a pretty darn crazy one as well. So uh, we've got some good stuff for you here to close out the work week. And let's dive right into it, uh, Jim. Our good martini is once again our own governor, Glenn Youngkin. And it's not just because we're trying to give him a pat on the back or you know, boost any national ambitions. In fact, we've said a number of times we don't want him to run in 2024. He's doing a good job. We'd like to keep him here and... Uh, you know, we hired him for four years. Let's do that job. But he keeps just addressing things in a really common sense way. Uh, schools, of course, let's get the parents involved. Parents make the choices about masks. More recently, the transgender policy. The parents need to be part of this equation. Of course, that led to this massive protest among students and so forth. But it's just common sense. And now energy is the latest issue where he's using common sense. And uh, the Washington Examiner is giving him credit for that, talking about how you know our energy situation is a little bit volatile right now between Biden's policies and what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine. And so we don't want to be held hostage to anybody's energy manipulations here in Virginia or anywhere in this country. And uh, the examiner says it doesn't have to be like that in Virginia. Instead of blindly pursuing rapid decarbonization at the expense of flexibility and affordability, Youngkin recently proposed an all-of-the-above energy approach in Lynchburg that includes investments in natural gas, nuclear, and renewables. He also absolutely wants to disconnect Virginia from its ridiculous decision back during the Democratic administration to basically tack its environmental policy along with whatever California is doing. That is the sure road uh, to economic ruin, uh, Jim. But nuclear is something that the left has been hysterical about ever since Three Mile Island. For some reason, they're declaring war on natural gas, even though it's far cleaner than the other fossil fuels. And Glenn Youngkin's saying, we're not necessarily staying here, but we've got to have it or else we can't afford it and we're not going to have reliable energy. Seems basic, but uh, in, in today's political climate, I guess, I guess that's remarkable. You know, Greg, when you think about Virginia's policy, being that, well, whatever California decides will do the same. Uh, I don't know if you want to call that the, you know, when Harry met Sally policy, I'll have what she's having. Uh, or alternately, I'm reminded of know, some gangster movie with Ben Affleck where he, you know, meets with some thug and the thug says, my boss is going to make short work of you. And Ben Affleck says, wait, you're not in charge? Well, why am I wasting my time talking to you then? And he shoots the guy. Um, wait, wait, Democrats in the Virginia state legislature don't set Virginia energy policy? Well, why are we wasting our time with them then? Let's go talk to the Democrats. They're the ones who are in charge of Virginia's energy policy. Um, it, it's in addition to being a good plan, in addition to being just a giant tall glass of common sense, I think it also helps spotlight that most Democrats' energy policy, whether it's the Biden administration or governors like Gavin Newsom, Although I guess we should give a little bit of credit and I mean, you know, molecular level, a little bit of credit to Newsom for keeping the nuclear plant in Diablo Canyon open. Um, most Democrats views on energy, you know, all stem from a misperception of what the public actually prioritizes. If you ask people, do you support the wind power? They'll say, sure. And you say, do you support solar power? Sure. And in Democratic ads at this time of year, you'll see lots of stock footage of solar panels in a valley and windmills. And you'll say, we can harness our energy for tomorrow by, you know, in, in, in a tune with our planet or, or, you know, all these kind of feel good stuff. 
And then when you actually ask polling questions and you say to people, how much more are you willing to pay to reduce carbon emissions? All of a sudden, the level of support falls off really fast. You know, it's you know, 25 bucks a year, 50 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year. Once you get past 100 bucks a year, people are like, nah, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. Nah, I, I, but when I thought we needed a cleaner, cleaner energy and a cleaner environment, I meant other people should pay more to get a cleaner you know, energy. That's most people's thinking. And so the moment you start discussing the actual costs of this, one being higher energy rates, two being a less reliable grid, three is we're seeing higher gas prices, all this kind of stuff, all of that suddenly makes it a much, oh, well, wait, I wasn't signing on, signing on for that. The public doesn't really want any of that. And unfortunately, until you've got sufficient energy from sufficient sources, that's what you end up with. We want to be in a situation where we have an energy surplus not an energy deficit. We want to have too much energy. We'll figure out a way to do with it. We'll store it in batteries. We'll figure out something to do with it. But we don't want to be in a situation where you have a shortage because that's how you end up with California saying, look, we really want to make it easy for you to buy electric cars. And also, please don't recharge your electric car right now because it's putting too much stress on the grid. Yeah, that blatant contradiction there. So yes, you know, could you see a future someday when Virginia gets an enormous amount of its energy from renewables like wind and solar? Yes, sure, absolutely. I'm all for this stuff. I'm not against it. Go, you want to build that stuff? Go do it. But you can't bar natural gas. You can't bar nuclear. You cannot bar. You're not going to be able to get rid of coal tomorrow, and you're not going to be able to get rid of oil-based, you know, gasoline cars tomorrow. And you need to be realistic about this. And unfortunately, far too many Democrats are not. Good for you. Uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin, don't think that this is a good reason to start running for president. You still have a job to do, but good job on this plan nonetheless. No, absolutely right. And the Democrats still don't understand where electricity comes from. They're already having problems producing it uh, out west in a lot of different ways. And of course, then they want everybody driving an electric vehicle if they have a vehicle at all. And that's going to obviously be a a much greater taxing of the grid. But uh, they haven't thought that far ahead that coal is still the, the, the main driver of, of uh, electricity generation. The, the thing that I love about Glenn Youngkin here, Jim, is that uh, he drives the left crazy, frothing at the mouth. And if people pay attention to what they're actually frothing at the mouth over, it's going to make the Democrats look really bad. I mean, parents should be involved in education, and we should have as many options as possible with energy. This guy's a radical. I mean, uh, he's exposing the Democrats for the total <laughs> yeah, frauds hey. they are. There are certain Republicans who do seem to think that they, you know, gain authenticity points or uh, break through the noise of a news cycle if they run around and scream and shout, you know, and pound the podium and look and sound like Yosemite Sam. Glenn Youngkin just comes across as the most sensible middle management, you know, next door neighbor you could ever possibly have who's willing to lend you his tools, but who also probably wants to, you to keep, take good care of them or something like that. And, you know, the more you froth at the mouth and the more you say, oh, my God, look what this guy's doing. I think it, it's kind of self-defeating of Democrats. And I think that was a lesson of last year's gubernatorial election. We'll see if those lessons continue in this year's midterms. Yeah, yeah, I certainly hope so. Last poll I saw had Yunkin at 55 percent approval, 35 percent disapproval in Virginia. That's about as good as you're going to do, uh, probably for either party, but certainly uh, for a Republican in a state that you know had been trending uh, blue quite considerably uh, up until the 2021 election. So we'll see if he has an impact uh, on some of these congressional elections. And certainly we've got Virginia midterms next year, Jim, because, of course, if you live in Virginia, you never get a year off. On to our bad martini now, Jim. And uh, Joe Biden just loves to throw stuff out there. Uh, this was at a Democratic fundraiser, so we don't actually have any 
audio of it. Apparently, Jimmy Carter's grandson wasn't there to roll on this one uh, like he did at Mitt Romney's 47% fundraiser back in the day. But this is from the AP. President Joe Biden declaring that the risk of nuclear quote-unquote Armageddon is at the highest level since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis as Russian officials speak of using tactical nuclear weapons after suffering massive setbacks in the eight-month invasion of Ukraine. Speaking at a Democratic fundraiser, Biden said Thursday night that Russian President Vladimir Putin is, quote, a guy I know fairly well. And the Russian leader is, quote, not joking. He always thinks people would think he's joking. Not joking when he talks about the use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. Added Biden, quote, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He suggested the threat from Putin is real, quote, because his military is, as you might say, significantly underperforming. So, Jim, I realize it's behind closed doors. It's not at a White House podium. But, you know, if you say anything uh, remarkable at a fundraiser, it's going to get out, which, of course, this did. I'm not sure it helps. Uh, maybe he thinks that saying it uh, in a way that it's going to get media attention is going to somehow convince Putin not to do it because we're watching him. But uh, it seems like he's ratcheting things up here more than he's trying to tamp them down. Greg, this is one of the rare times I will say your summary leading into our discussion actually, I think, understates how bad this is. So this is you know, when the president does a partisan fundraiser. There are no cameras. There are no microphones. But usually there is a pool print reporter who is allowed to have a pen and paper and transcribe what the president is saying. Um, the White House has put out a transcript of Biden's remarks, presumably checked against the audio um, for the first fundraiser he went to yesterday, in which he did not mention Russia at all, uh, but they have not, as of this recording, released the transcript, uh, the official transcript of the event uh, for this second one. The fact that Biden did not say something at that first fundraiser makes me believe this is not some subtle messaging to Putin or some sort of, you know, this is an attempt to send some sort of signal to Russia I think this is just Joe Biden talking about whatever pops into his mind at any given moment. And I don't know why Biden decided to blurt out the word Armageddon in the you know the course of this discussion. So there are like three bad things about this. The first is, uh, and I, you know, why why is Biden using this particularly charged, you know, uh, really ominous language? I think seeing the probably the most ominous possible indicator is that he's seen something in some sort of, you know, I don't know if it's the presidential daily briefing or some other intelligence briefing that put that topic on his mind and has him anxious about it, has him nervous about it. He just felt, you know, he felt the need to, to talk about this in front of everyone. The second thing that's kind of really ominous about that is when you say, you know, look, we've discussed this on the podcast. I've written about this in the Morning Jolt newsletter. Look, you know, from the beginning of this conflict, we've known that Russia has a lot of what they call tactical nuclear weapons. These are smaller yield. Uh, they're still bad. No, don't get me wrong. You know, you don't want to be anywhere near one of them when they go off. But they are not the city destroyers you might be envisioning from, you know, the day after and, and other movies about nuclear war and things like that. And the possibility of Russia using them has been one that, you know, most defense experts and lots of folks in the media have been talking about and speculating about. And Putin's rhetoric certainly makes it sound like he's, you know, this is not as unthinkable to him as we would hope it would be. Does this mean he's going to do it? Look, everybody else in U.S. government is saying, no, we've seen nothing indicating this. Obviously, we're concerned. Obviously, we watch this very closely. But no, we are not heading to a higher DEFCON level or something like that. Once again, Biden is going out there and saying things that are not official U.S. policy. 
Except the question is, when the U.S. president is saying it, does it become policy, right? I cannot help but get the feeling that uh, this is, you know, just more of the same from Biden. But this is now like the third time he's had a major one in the course of this conflict. The first being a moderate incursion or a small incursion. We might handle it differently. And the second one being, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power when you're speaking over in Europe. This is a time, there's a time and a place for strategic ambiguity. I don't think this is it. And I, you know, the final, when you say, well, if, if, you know, if Putin sets off a nuke that inevitably leads towards Armageddon, that strikes me, and maybe some other folks will see this differently, but I think you can say that's, that is certainly implying that Ukraine is under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. The U.S. nuclear umbrella is uh, this argument, you know, the argument that, that we have several allies who do not have nuclear weapons, uh, Japan, South Korea, most of Europe, other than Britain and France. And as a result of that, we say, look, if anybody ever attacks you with a nuclear weapon, we will respond on your behalf. Um, now, you, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We do not. We are not obligated by treaty to defend Ukraine. And up until last night, Ukraine was not under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, meaning that a nuclear, Russian nuclear attack on Ukraine would not automatically spur a U.S. response. From where I sit, a Russian attack on Ukraine should not spur a U.S. nuclear response. We have a lot of other tools in our toolbox. Doing you know, Our nuclear response to Russia really does set off that, and it really does create the you know, Armageddon scenario. I don't know what's going through Biden's head right now. I do know that after he said this last night, and various U.S. officials said to other U.S. media at the moment they inquired, no, we haven't seen anything different. Nothing's new to us. We don't know what the president's talking about. Uh, this afternoon, the president will be going to tour a Volvo facility, I believe, Gaithersburg, Maryland. And then he'll be going to Philadelphia, and I believe he'll be, sp- and then he'll be spending the weekend in Delaware, Greg. Does that sound like a man who's facing down Armageddon? <laughs> no. No. I tell you, folks, we're facing Armageddon. Vacation all everyone. <laughs> then he's going off to, the, off to, off to Delaware again. Um, I don't think the president pays much attention to what he says, and we can afford that in a senator. We can even afford that in a vice president. We cannot afford that in a president in an ongoing conflict where there's a potential use of nuclear weapons. This is the time for the president to be really clear, not to just blurt out the first thing that pops into his mind. This is really, really bad. Much worse than Jackie, where are you? Or I used to drive a tractor trailer or any of these other things we've seen from the president in recent months and years. This is, this is, we're really getting to a point where he can't, the guy, you know, like anybody in the U.S. can, you know, worry about a nuclear conflict leading to Armageddon. But Greg, it sounds really much worse and really different when it comes from the man who has his finger on the button. Well said. I'm just wondering if, since it's a fundraiser, he's like in total hyperbole mode. Doesn't excuse what he Donate did. Donate now. <laughs> he's like, and the only thing, and the only thing worse than nuclear Armageddon, Jack, are MAGA Republicans. You know, just trying yeah, to... Yeah, you know, that, that's the thing that we're used to, you know, Republicans will destroy the... No, but this is clearly in the context of, no, no, Putin's going to destroy the world. <laughs> you know? Like, in that case, do you really want to give it to, you know... You know, you, maybe you pull out your savings, you know. But then again, with inflation, you're pulling out your savings anyway. You know what's a good deterrent to a nuclear power is the country they're fighting having nukes, which Ukraine did until the Obama mm-hmm. administration told them to give them up. So, you know, if the deterrent is not strong enough to prevent Putin from uh, doing that, let's not forget about that little detail in recent American history.
All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, we have talked about Mary Catherine Ham from time to time here. She's uh, long been a writer uh, for uh, Hot Air and, and other places. I'm not exactly sure where she's writing now. She's been a Fox contributor. She's now a CNN contributor. She's written books. Uh, many people know the tragic story of her uh, losing her husband in a bicycle accident and her very public discussion of what that grief has looked like and then uh, putting her life back together and, and being remarried and so forth. Uh, yesterday, she wrote a substack about why CNN viewers haven't seen her for the past several months. And the reason is she was quiet suspended, as she says, trying to make a playoff of quiet quitting that's, that's happening at work. Uh, now, a lot of our listeners probably don't watch CNN, so they didn't know that she, she wasn't on recently. But she hadn't been on from, I think, January, she said, until July when this kind of new CNN regime came in. Zucker uh, and that gang left, and, and now the new folks are coming in trying to kind of reset the, the lineup there, kicking out Stelter and also Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin, of course, had been suspended for a number of months because of, uh, well, Self-gratification on a Zoom call with uh, work colleagues. Let's let's put it that way. Then they brought him back. Uh, Allison Camerata had a really awkward brief interview with him about it. They kind of giggled about it. And it's like, okay, anyway, back to your book and whatever's going on in the legal world. So Mary Catherine Ham didn't like that very much at the time when Jeff Tubin came back. She said so publicly, and that is why she was suspended. But she was never told that. She just was never asked to come in to be a panelist on any particular issue. Uh, so they were basically freezing her out with no explanation whatsoever. Finally, uh, the new regime says, okay, we're going to put you back into the rotation. And she says, that's fine. I'll come back. But there's no way I'm not going to explain what just happened here. So, uh, Jim, what does this say about CNN and this crazy political world we're living in right now? I'm, I'm sighing like Michael Brennan Doherty over here. Um, I, first of all, yes, you know, both you and I are, you know, big charter members of the Mary Catherine Ham fan club. So we would be inclined to want to see her treated well and properly by CNN for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, this, I think, you know, as she lays out in that substack, her unannounced secret suspension for writing a tweet about Tubin is one month shorter than Tubin's actual suspension for what he did. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us would say what he did on that Zoom call was much, much worse and much, much more unprofessional than, you know, her uh, critique of it. And oh, by the way, like most of us were rather baffled by the decision to bring Tubin back. I'm glad they got rid of him. I, you know, he, uh, not whether or not you were a big fan of him before, the uh, infamous incident. You, you know, there are a lot of people in this world who can analyze Supreme Court decisions. There are a lot of people in this world who can be analysts. Uh, you throw a stone in Washington, you're going to hit a lawyer. Like the the <laughs> uh, possibility, oh, Jeff Tubin is so good. He's so terrific at this. that you know, There's no way we can replace him with any other legal analyst. Oh, no, no, no. We got to keep him, even though he did this, was always this spectacularly insane perspective on things. Mary Catherine Ham has a throwaway line about the old boys club. And I, 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 that even the old boys club, you'd think would be like, yeah, no guy, you can't do that on a zoom call. You can't, you really, yeah. even, even the most stuffiest old boys club would say, ah, that's, that's really pushing it. I don't think we can defend that. Jeff Zucker apparently is a maniac. Apparently he is an, an absolute sociopath. Um, all kinds of problems. We don't need to go through all the problems at CNN on his tenure, Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo stands out as a particularly big example of this. He was canoodling with his second in command, all kinds of stuff. But that's all bad. 
But when you absolutely go to bat to defend Jeffrey Tubin and bring him back, and then you get, you know, you get really upset with anybody else at the network for acknowledging that Jeff Tubin really should be held more accountable and he really doesn't belong to be in this and that he's committed an ipso facto, straightforward, no doubt about it, flashing neon sign, firing offense. You know, if you get more mad at Mary Catherine Ham than you do at Jeffrey Tubin in these circumstances, I think that says an enormous amount about you. I just got like one kind of closing thought here because you're looking, it's like, oh my God, they're, 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 you know, how can they possibly be thinking this? So way back when, this is like the, the mid-Bush years, uh, Greg, I'm sure you remember um, Spitzer Parker back on <laughs> CNN primetime, right? Yes. All right. So this is, you know, for people who don't remember, Elliot Spitzer was the governor of uh, New York State and uh, was caught banging prostitutes. That's very... That's bad. You're not supposed to do this. As governor, you're in charge of enforcing the law, and you yourself are breaking the law. And oh, by the way, prostitution is a very sleazy thing to do, client number nine, etc. And yet he had gone back and he'd started doing these various commentaries, and, and Spitzer had kind of been trying to run a comeback. And then whoever it was at CNN at the time, and I don't think it was Zucker, I think it was someone like his predecessor, looked at Elliot Spitzer and said, yes, this is the person we want co-anchoring our 8 p.m. programming in primetime on CNN. Now, my understanding is that somebody within the network looked at that, and then they, they put her with Kathleen Parker. You know, I've had disagreements with Kathleen Parker in the past, but boy, oh boy, she doesn't deserve to be seated at the next the same desk as Elliot Spitzer. And lo and behold, uh, if I remember correctly, Parker found him difficult to work with. Go figure. Who <laughs> can see that coming? And a bit of a creep and uh, ended up leaving after four months or so. Or so it was some, some fairly short period of time. And then the show was just called Spitzer. Now, again, it's going to shock you. Ratings were not good. Greg, I just, it, you know, in a flabbergasting, unforeseeable turn of events, it turned out women viewers didn't like Elliot Spitzer. No. Yeah. Huh. Shocking. Uh, and I believe that somebody literally said this like to the head of, C- of CNN when they were making this decision. You know, boss, I really think a lot of viewers are going to have a problem with Elliot Spitzer. And the response was, I don't care. Meaning that for whatever reason, this person had fallen in love with the idea of Elliot Spitzer anchoring the 8 p.m. hour. Which, by the way, is like one of the plum jobs. At, at, I think, you know, they just... Uh, so switching over from Anderson Cooper to to Jake Tapper, I think. I whatever, whatever, you know, eight o'clock. That's the beginning of prime time. That's when Tucker's on Fox. That's when you want your best stuff. And they had a disgraced former governor who had to resign because he was banging prostitutes. Not as much has changed at CNN as you would think. And it used to, you know, I used to do a bunch of TV work, and now I don't. And the phone doesn't ring as often. And maybe it's because I suck, or maybe it's just that you know, cable TV world is kind of screwed up. And you hear stories like this, and you hear stories. Well, there's one last detail. Let's assume you really think Jeff Tubin is a terrific guy, and this could happen to anybody. No, it couldn't. And uh, that you know he does. He you know he he's done his suspension. It's time to have him fine. Let's say you really are mad at Mary Catherine Ham for that one tweet that made a reference to Tubin. At minimum, I think you have to say, "Yeah, we're suspending you. We're not having you on air because of your tweet." To not say so to her and to simply not call her and not have her on air for a month and then another month and then another month, um, that's really gutless. That, that is absolutely – if you are going to take this kind of spectacularly wrongheaded position, own it. Take your lumps. 
you live with the consequences. And that's what's really egregious about all this is that Jeff Zucker didn't need, you know, he, I think deep down he knew this was wrong. Otherwise, he would have told Mary Catherine Ham and risked dealing with her postpartum hormones. Ha! Greg, I tell you, women are crazy, aren't they? You know, can't trust them in the workplace. This is a good old-fashioned CNN, which I'm sure would tell you that's very you know, pro-feminist, et cetera, et cetera. It's absolutely an appalling story. CNN boss, but sounds like the new regime is on better terms with Mary Catherine Hamm, and I'm glad to hear that. Nonetheless, everybody at CNN should be down on their knees begging Mary Catherine Hamm to come back and to let bygones be bygones because they have treated her terribly. And they're very lucky that she's not storming out the door because she's got every right to every right and every good reason to do so. Very well said. Yeah, there's so many egregious problems here. First of all, it's fascinating to know that Jeff Zucker basically acted like a moody teenager. Uh, just stop talking. Just stop talking to yeah. her. And then, uh, hey, so, anything wrong? No, no, fine, fine. So why, why am I not on? No, nothing, nothing. And uh, the other thing, <laughs> the other story of Elliot Spitzer, it just all of a sudden this this image in my mind of a CNN exec uh, calling in Kathleen Parker and going, okay, Kathleen, so we're going to give you your dream. Primetime hosting CNN 8 o'clock. What do you think? Great, great. Let's do it. Okay, just one more thing. Um, yeah, the governor who just had to resign because he was with prostitutes, he's your co-host. Uh-huh. <laughs> What do you do? I mean, what do you do? I, I, I assume at that point she's like, well, I, I've always wanted to do this. It's really good money. It's good exposure for what I do. I guess maybe. Can we be in separate studios? That should be a, yeah, that should be a back up a second Brinks truck <laughs> and then we'll talk. Oh, your dream's right there in front of you. And then it's like the balloon right there. But there's a catch. <laughs> <laughs> the only catch is I would uh, we can can't start soon enough, Greg. Yes, that's right. So let's get to it. Jim, have a good weekend. I'll see you. Oh, you're actually out on uh, Columbus Day, but I will see you on Tuesday. See you Tuesday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell your friends about us as well. Uh, also, thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Do not forget about Jim's brand new thriller, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey, guys, we know there's so much going on in the news, but don't worry because we're here to talk about all the things. Democrats are still defending Biden's gaffes as they get inexcusable, and it's more important than ever to get involved in your community as schools continue to hire woke freak shows that are only concerned with grooming our kids. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.